Um, well, thank you everyone for uh, making it to this final session of the symposium. Uh, my name is uh, Darius Rackus. I'm a, a PhD in chemistry working here at U of T as a postdoctoral uh, researcher. Um, and I'm also uh, the seminar, seminar series, co-seminar, seminar series co-coordinator uh, for the network of Christian scholars based here at the University of Toronto. Um, in, in the agenda today, we have, uh, I think, what is titled um, Forum on Critical Issues, uh, a very vague title. But we are going to be discussing um, with our panel uh, this afternoon uh, the topic of being a Christian in academia. Um, and largely, this is a time for uh, you as attendees to ask questions, um, which we'll be taking uh, from the audience. Uh, but before we do that, uh, I'd like to ask our panel members to each introduce themselves. So we'll start with you in here. Hi everyone, my name is Ewan Gallagher. I'm a physician scientist at University Health Network. Good here at U of T. And I, uh, my research is on mechanical ventilation and its impact on the lungs and breathing muscles. And I'm with the network of Christian scholars as well. Good afternoon. Hello. Okay. We'll switch at the top. Hello, hello. Thank you. Uh, my name is uh, David Koop, and I'm actually parked here at Wycliffe College for the last uh, half dozen or so years. So I'm a, I'm a bit of a hybrid. Um, I'm a practitioner academic, I guess you would say. I spent about two-thirds of my career in the international development world, um, and then as an academic now in community development studies, but I've also got two feet, one each planted in theology and in international development. So I don't know, is that a four-way hybrid or something? <laughs> my name is Chris. My name is Chris Berger, pastor in Montreal, PhD in philosophy. I think it oh, it's the other way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Your turn now. <laughs> I know. So my name is Chris Berger. I'm a pastor in Montreal. I'm a Wycliffe graduate, PhD in philosophy from McGill. I uh, taught graduate level for a number of uh, years before going into pastoring. Um, <clears throat> I'm the, uh, the author of Freedom All the Way Up, God and the Meaning of Life in a Scientific Age. And uh, one of my hats is as... Uh, convener of the McGill Christian Faculty Fellowship. And so in that sense, I'm kind of a pastor, if you will, to um, My name is Paul Franks. I, I teach in the philosophy department uh, up the road at Tyndale University College. Uh, I work primarily in the philosophy of religion uh, and mostly work on the problem of evil and uh, dabble in some, some work in ethical theory and arguments for God's existence, that sort of stuff uh, as well, so. Yeah. Well, welcome and thank you to our panel for being here today. Um, so I want to start us off uh, with maybe a very broad and lofty question um, while our audience uh, prepares uh, their thoughts, but um, I want to put this to everyone. What is the calling or what is the role of the Christian scholar? Go ahead. <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll take a, a stab at it. Uh, I think it, it probably would be a multifaceted response. For, for different people, you'll probably get different things. But I think ultimately, the Christian scholar is, um, is 
one who is uh, devoted to loving God with our minds and to, to using the skills and abilities that we have uh, as scholars to uh, enhance the, the church um, and to, to, to build the kingdom. And so that can happen through training of other uh, believers or through uh, making a, a case for the, the truth and rationality of Christianity amongst a, uh, a non-Christian audience. And so um, I think ultimately it's going to tie into to, to loving God with your mind and using those abilities um, or those sometimes just those of us that have the interest in these sorts of things um, and using that for the advancement of the kingdom in, in, in some, some way. So um, I get, I think from my standpoint, I, a Christian scholar is, is a scholar, like all scholars, uh, prize knowledge, delight in the pursuit of knowledge and um, displays skill in, in that pursuit. I think what's, what's different about being a Christian scholar is pertains to what uh, Miroslav Volf described as sort of the essence of flourishing, which he said was the unity of meaning and pleasure. So whereas my colleagues find pleasure in uh, conducting research, in advancing the field, and it's fulfilling in a certain sense for those of us who are Christians, there is a deeper layer of meaning to what we are doing where we are thinking God's thoughts after him. We are mm -hmm. discovering the things that God has imagined to be true and uh, we are celebrating the greatness of God as, as his greatness is uncovered by what we do. So there's a, there's a pleasure, there's a, a delight in scholarship like every other scholar has, but mm -hmm. for us there's also a deeper layer of meaning built into it that, that b becomes, I think, um, makes scholarship that much more significant. Mm. Mm. I, go ahead. I'd add to that, I'd agree with what's being said. Scholars always work in contexts of communities, academic communities, uh, funding communities and so forth, and in which there are relationships. And so I see Christian scholars also bringing Christian relational mm. values into our mm. environments in which we do our scholarship as well. And I guess the thing I would add is that being an interdisciplinary person between kind of the secular world of international development and theology I, th I wonder if we don't have to uh, use extra skills of paradox and accommodation sometimes, uh, partly because faith and science uh, have this amazingly interesting relationship over history and in contemporary times. Uh, so, you know, the kinds of questions I've had to deal with are, do you drill a borehole where you know the water is if it's on sacred land? Mm -hmm. And does, at what points does faith trump science or vice versa? So there's a constant uh, dialogue, I think, mm. that, that has to take place. And sometimes accommodation means things that you didn't think about before uh, to work well with communities, for example. Excellent. Um, maybe, David, you mentioned this word paradox and accommodation. and. Um, Again, I want to put this to the, the whole panel, but as Christians, uh, we come to our academic work uh, ascribing to a creed and, and professing a belief. Um, how, do, how does that work in pursuit of truth if you are already set with some certain presuppositions? So how, how, do, 
how do our panel members navigate, navigate that? And oftentimes these presuppositions are very different from the prevailing presuppositions within our disciplines. Even I'll smiling because I've asked the impossible question. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think that um, it's very important to, important to avoid the temptation to think that we're the only ones coming to the pursuit of knowledge with baggage. That uh, I, I, I see in our contemporary time almost a return to the secular religious dichotomy that existed in the medieval ages where there was this massive chasm between that which was the secular and that which was the sort of sacred. And now in the contemporary dialogue is the, you know, a faith-based organization versus a secular organization. And I think that completely glosses over the fact that everyone is ultimately religious. Everyone has basic presuppositions that they hold to without evidence and form the basis for their whole understanding of the world and their pursuit of knowledge. So my colleagues who don't ascribe to a religion are as religious in that sense as I am and come with baggage and assumptions about uh, the basis uh, for human authority. So in, in my view, uh, I, I think that Augustine's notion of faith-seeking understanding really resonates, and the Christian faith, in my view, enables, empowers, and motivates the pursuit of knowledge in a way that no other system of thought does. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I don't, if anything, uh, the, the, the fact of that baggage motivates me because m my baggage is coherent and works and is not viciously circular in the way that some of my colleagues' baggage is. That's a pretty bold claim, but I could defend it if... Uh. <laughs> I'd, I'd make a parallel observation that sometimes one hears in debates, especially with new atheists, that, uh, well, religion has authority and science doesn't have authority. And that's hogwash. <laughs> um, <clears throat> history of science is full of examples of of uh, repression of new thoughts, um, lots of uh, examples. Uh, so kind of just parallel, parallel comment. On the other side, in terms of, of, uh, of our own faith, uh, I suspect probably all of us here, our, our faith has uh, morphed and is not what it was 30 years ago, perhaps, or something. So, uh, um, so I know for myself, um, although I, I work out of an Orthodox Christian framework, um, I arrived at that having rejected it at an earlier phase of my life, explored other uh, worldviews and frameworks, I, and come back to Christian faith in a way that is um, somewhat different than my earlier faith, uh, but still um, uh, I am persuaded by the, uh, the, 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 the structure of Christian faith. Mm. Uh, and so it's not simply something I operate out of, it's being given to me and I operate out of that unquestioningly. Uh, I have come to that framework and that is why I operate out of it. Well, and I, I think I would, I would resonate with that too and I would, because I think you're talking about a journey in this question mm. as opposed to it being mm. a static mm. snapshot. And I would extend that ancestrally to my own grandparents and great-grandparents. If I compare how my grandfather as a Baptist minister you know, 100 years ago would answer that question, there'd be a very interesting migration between us over a couple of generations. 
And he and my grandmother were, you know, very, in their context, very close to the beginning of industrialization. And life was just changing impossibly fast for them, like, probably like we think it is for us. But he was in an Anabaptist environment where they were asking very interesting questions about technology and science. But they were prioritizing community and saying, how does, how does the science affect our relationships with each other? So they're having to deal with, do we put a phone in? Or do we add power? Or do we use tractors? Mm -hmm. And we have all those same questions, I think, in a completely digital sense around some of the things that are assaulting us now. Mm -hmm. How does it affect our relationships in our communities? And in that sense, faith for me prioritizes the community question, if we can define that, um, over necessarily the adaptation and submersion inside of technology or science. So you'd say that um, your presuppositions as a Christian also uh, strongly influences what questions you're even asking. Yeah, and what weights you give to the answers are parts of the answer sectorally, I think. Yeah, I, th I think about it maybe in a slightly different way. Um, I don't see it that my Christian presuppositions force me to sort of start off in a particular way and ignore other certain ways. I, instead, I think of it as because I, I love God and I, and I want to be more like him and be more like Christ and I want Christ's um, way to be known, I'm motivated by different things or I'm motivated to pursue different things. But I don't think um, that means that whenever I do my academic work that I have a different set of guiding presuppositions. I'm just interested in different sorts of things. But at least, so, you know, uh, I, you know, I do some work on, like, arguments for God's existence. Well, that's a question that lots of atheists are, pick up as well. And I don't think that the atheists that reject particular arguments for God's existence, I don't think they do it because they have different presuppositions. I just think they have different reasons that lead them to think certain arguments don't work. And this is why... Um, so, I, I, you know, I have an, a, a paper that I'm arguing that somebody else's argument for God's existence doesn't work. Like, um, I, I want the conclusion to be, like, I think the conclusion is true. Mm -hmm. I just don't think the way that they, the guy gets there is any good. And so it's not that the presuppositions are forcing me to take one route versus another. And so, because uh, I don't know that, at least in philosophy, this may, maybe, maybe it's different in other areas, but in philosophy, at least, I, I don't know that you, you have to divvy it up that way. I, I think... Um, we, we just happen, I find myself motivated by different kinds of questions mm -hmm. uh, than I would be if I were a philosopher who didn't care about Christ. Uh, I would just probably be raising different kinds of questions. Um, I don't know if that makes, if that's coherent yeah, or not. Excellent, but, thank you. Um, um, why don't we open up questions to the floor? Is there a roving microphone going around or perhaps, I think I'm wireless so I can, uh, does that one work? Excellent. All right. Do we have any questions? Oh, at the back. Excuse me as I dance around with my wires. <laughs> so my question is for all of you as educators. So do you see the role of a Christian educator in a higher education institution, especially when teaching non-Christians? to form not only knowledgeable people that are knowledgeable in your field, but also virtuous people. And if that is a concern that you should have, how do you proceed to impart virtue to your students and not only knowledge? Who would like to start us off with that? 
I guess I can I can start off, uh, Lucas. That's a that's a great question. Um, I guess for me, working in in and practicing medicine, that's a particularly pressing concern because one of the goals of medical education is explicitly to train good physicians, and to be a good physician is not merely to be technically competent, but also to be morally virtuous. So um, I think absolutely. I think my uh, my colleagues who may or may not be Christians would ex would ascribe to the same goal. So I, I, I think in general, the way that those virtues are communicated is not so much in word as in deed, as, as people see how you care for patients and how you practice your work. And I think um, being a Christian doesn't guarantee that you will actually be the paradigm example. I think we're Christians because we believe that Jesus is the paradigm example, mm -hmm. but and we strive to follow him. But uh, sadly, uh, w we ourselves are not always the paradigm examples. But but we're motivated to uh, to exemplify virtue because of our discipleship, for sure. So I think that's an important part of your work as a as an educator, as a researcher, where you're training future investigators and so on to work with integrity and so on. But to me, a lot of that, in general, is is more through communication, through how you how you do things, than than what you say so much. For for me, it's slightly different, um, just c because I teach at a Christian university. Um, so y you don't have to be a Christian to attend Tyndale, but most students are. And so, um, so one of the things I've I I try to do to help students see this is actually by way of of application of the ideas that we're learning in our so. Um, in an intro to philosophy course, we, we may be talking about uh, Aristotle and his account of ethics. And, and so students think about that and how does that commit to virtue? Well, w one way that I can try and get students to sort of take those ideas and, and apply them in a way that changes them as individuals is to show them how it relates to the Christian life. And, and you, you know, there's interesting parallels between the development of uh, the practice of the spiritual disciplines and er how Aristotle understands the development and habituation of the virtues. Like there's actually a lot of parallels there. And so by showing the one how it applies to the Christian life can help students see the importance of the ideas and then hopefully sort of internalize them and allow them to change them as, as persons and develop those virtues themselves. But that's obviously going to be very different in a, a, a classroom of philosophy versus a, a group of students in, in the medical field. Um, uh, you know, especially one being a Christian university and the other side. It's going to be very different, but that's how it looks in at least what I try and do at, at Tyndale. Um, yeah. Maybe let's, I think we have a related question in the audience here. So, um, so I'm at uh, McMaster, uh, the religious department there, and I'm uh, a TA for a course, cross-listed uh, with women's studies and, um, and religious questions right um, around femininity and the goddesses and whatnot. And so me as an aspiring, someone who wants to, aspires to be a, a Christian um, scholar who uh, desires to teach, but also wants to remain marketable, um, mm. those kinds of questions, what advice, wisdom would you guys recommend uh, navigating this in a highly political, mm. highly... Um, contentious context in the university. You know, if you say something wrong, you could get blacklisted, mm -hmm. etc. Looks like this is a question where the rubber meets the road and we'll ask. I guess we've got three panel members working at explicitly Christian institutions, so. 
I, I guess that my initial comment would be um, don't discount that those political tensions are not elsewhere. Uh, they can be just as sharp at a denominational institute. Mm -hmm. And especially if you're in that, in that faculty and you're non-tenured. Mm. I mean, there's plenty of examples of people falling prey to the tensions of those environments mm -hmm. by uh, not necessarily saying quite the right thing or by asking questions in a way that uh, don't fit the, the pedagogy of the place. So I, I think I, I would ask how do we do or how do we deal with those political tensions in a variety of situations, as well as the one that you're raising? I, you know, I, this is a profoundly important question, a profoundly important pragmatic question. So my own experience would be working as a physician in, in, in a acute care setting where, you know, there's been the sea change in ethics in terms of uh, euthanasia and even the expectation to refer patients for euthanasia and being a conscientious objector and there being relatively few of us mm. and how do you um, navigate that in such a way that that you're you don't get kicked out of the institution which is broadly supportive of the practice um, mm. and I think the first thing to recognize is that we need to be humble and respectful of other people's ways of looking at the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Jesus modeled this well of being winsome. He spoke of being wise as a serpent and gentle mm -hmm. as a dove. Mm -hmm. um, and when we uh, exemplify the, the virtues of humility, mm -hmm. love, um, respect, and, um, and striving for excellence as academics, and making a meaningful contribution to the project of the academy, mm -hmm. then I think there will be space for people to tolerate your presence. And um, I think particularly as um, you're in training and then a relatively junior member, you have to just remember your place and don't expect that, or don't feel necessarily obligated to be the one who's changing the world around you. We're not all necessarily going to play Martin Luther mm -hmm. in our uh, immediate context. Now, that's not to say that there doesn't come a time where you find yourself where it's clear that you need to speak, you need to take a stand, and uh, you need to be prepared to pay a price. And I'm not advocating um, sort of spinelessness mm -hmm. um, morally, but I do think that part of our witness is to be in the world, even as we're not of it. Mm -hmm. So we need to find a way to be in, to to participate in the life of that community and to just be examples of what uh, what uh, disciple of Jesus can function like <coughs> in the environment because frankly most people working in the academy don't have many encounters with disciples of Jesus so our mm. importance there is our presence there is important mm. I don't know if that's a coherent answer yeah, we I could talk for a long time personally <laughs> about that but that's the essence of my approach Chris, perhaps uh, we yeah, could put a bit of fine-tuning on, on this question. Uh, you spoke this morning about um, a, a deep and thoughtful, mm -hmm. sacrificial love and, and self-giving love. So it, in this situation where a Christian is posed with the, the proposition of teaching within a discipline that maybe they have fundamental disagreements with, desires to care for students um, and also remain marketable, what, do you have any advice or, or any thoughts on, on, on this question? Right. I mean, I, I would echo uh, what we've heard. 
Um, I might add just a bit of uh, uh, example of my own, my own story. Uh, I did my doctorate 20 years ago, <coughs> and uh, we had equivalent issues back then. I mean, there's always been equivalent issues mm -hmm. uh, uh, through the history of universities and uh, those questions on which we risk ourselves. So I think uh, a lot of it also includes what you were talking about giving to the academy uh, and what you bring in relationships in your department or wherever. Uh, so uh, I did my PhD not in theology department but in a, uh, a faculty of religious studies at McGill and um, there was uh, I mean, typically of a faculty of religious studies, there's no very positive view of uh, evangelicals. <laughs> um, <clears throat> however, um, the top students in, an, in the program when I was there were evangelicals. Um, and everyone knew that. And so uh, the dean of my department was a very theolog uh, theologically liberal United Church person, but she was so supportive of me. Mm. Um, and funded me for conferences and all kinds of stuff. Just, and we had, in a faculty where there was not general great sympathy to evangelicals, um, we had a very good experience there because the group of us were all strong on building relationships and contributing, doing well mm -hmm. at a scholarly level. And that just bought us credibility where our points of disagreement um, might in other contexts have caused us more harm than they actually did. So that's one example. Uh, just, I just want to add one thing on it, um, and it, uh, I, th I think this is exactly right with the, the approach both of you guys are arguing. The only thing I would add is, and I only want to mention it just because in the day-to-day -day living in these sorts of scenarios, we can sometimes forget, but I just want to strongly encourage you and anyone else in this area to just be in in constant prayer about when is the right time to speak out. You know, you and you said, you know, you don't always have to, it doesn't always have to be you trying to change the world. But I, I think you're right. There are times when it is appropriate for you to speak out, but the, the difficult part is knowing when. And so uh, thankfully, uh, at least in my view, uh, we can pray for, for wisdom uh, from God to know when is the time to speak out and when is the time to sort of just play the role of an academic at a secular institution, trying to think about things from their perspective and help them get the most learning and understanding they can get and but when you do need to need to need to speak out and so but I, I really think it's just important to never forget the role of prayer and knowing when's the right time to speak and when's the time to just sort of keep your head down and keep doing good academic work mm -hmm. so that it's hard for people to to work to work against you if you're doing good solid work and that you're somebody that they want to support yeah. I think just one of the small but huge challenges uh, with the context of the university college world now is just the reality that so many people are operating on almost month-to-month -month contracts. Mm -hmm. And you know the estimates tend to roll around 50% of the courses that students take now are taught by somebody without any kind of permanent attachment to the faculty or the institution. So that adds another dimension mm -hmm. of relationship and it also completely changes the role of the instructor who doesn't feel embedded in any yeah. real positive way inside of a community of other scholars. And so that question becomes very different for people that are going through the adjunct or the sessional mill again and again and mm -hmm. again and wanting to be profoundly good teachers and practice good pedagogy 
and how, but they, they actually have no place uh, systemically or institutionally inside of the, the machine yeah. to be able to speak. So uh, you may have already, to some degree, addressed this question, although um, it's kind of the flip side, I guess, of the question that was just asked. I'm suspicious many times that a lot of Christians in academia are much more concerned about advancing their career and getting the respect of their peers than they are about thinking from a Christian worldview and declaring what's true, even if it's unpopular. Um, so I'm wondering, do you, do you find that quite common? And to be honest, the Christian scholars I respect the most are the ones who don't do that. <laughs> so that probably sounds kind of self-serving or something like that. But um, I'm just wondering, though, in your opinion, do you see that happening a lot? And how do you guard against that in your own life? Well, I mean, that's uh, a huge, a huge temptation um, that's not uh, specific to being a Christian scholar to idolize uh, the opinion of others. Mm -hmm. uh, and perhaps maybe we're maybe a little bit more vulnerable to it because we sort of live and die by our CV. And you're constantly submitting your CV when you're trying to get grants and constantly trying to build it and taking, you know, in, and sort of very focused on building your CV to, to make progress just to stay alive uh, academically. So there is that sense. And when you're c constantly focused on your own accomplishment and recognizing the consequences of failing to make that progress that uh, maybe you're a little bit more prone to become uh, just want that kind of comfort and, and not want to deal with the consequences of controversy, et cetera. But I think that's a spiritual problem that mm -hmm. li we, like all believers, need to pray about and discipline ourselves against uh, accountability from others. I think mm -hmm. your concern yeah. is legitimate, absolutely. I, I think one of the best ways to guard against that is to be in, in the midst of a strong Christian uh, community of other like-minded scholars, like the Network of Christian Scholars, that, that sort of community. Um, so I'm a member of the Evangelical Philosophical Society, and the main reason I continue to be a member of that is, I mean, every year at our annual meeting, there's great, lots of interesting papers, uh, and I'm, I, there's a lot of edification there. Uh, but you can get that at a lot of other philosophy societies, but what I like about the uh, EPS is there's also a time where it's a, a clear commitment and a reminder that we, we may live and die by our CV, but uh, really we're, we're building our CV not for our purpose, but to try to put ourselves in a position to be better ambassadors for the kingdom. And so it's, it's you're, you're doing good work to build your CV, but not for the sake of building your CV. You're doing good work to build your CV so that you can continue to speak into the, the life of uh, of your colleagues or of other people in your discipline and within the guild. Uh, and so it's, uh, there's a, the, the, the ultimate goal, the, the, the final goal is, the, is more meaningful development of the kingdom. Uh, and so, but it can be, it's very easy to lose track of that, especially um, it, whenever things are going really well and you start thinking, look how important I am. I keep getting stuff, you know, I'm winning grants and I'm getting books or, or whenever things aren't going very well and you start thinking, I'm, I'm terrible at this and it all becomes about you. Uh, either of those two extremes, it's really easy to, to, to forget the, the, the ultimate reason you're trying to do this good work. It's not about you in the end. It's, it's about the kingdom. And so being in, in, uh, in the midst of a strong Christian community can help be a, a regular reminder of that. 
Um, and, and that, I think, is one of the best ways of, of guarding against us being around other people who, who have ultimately the same general way of thinking about Christian scholarship. I think if I could add uh, the sense of uh, uh, faculty who are sort of reticent to allow it to be known that they are Christians. <coughs> um, not, o- not only is it helpful to have that um, uh, Christian scholarly community, but I think it's also helpful to actually have a Christian worldview in which you're doing your work from. Mm. Uh, <coughs> and I think a lot of Christian faculty don't have that. Mm. Um, and so uh, kind of uh, as Dick Longacre, I remember in my first year New Testament class here, he stood in front of the class, he said, so many scholars of whatever type have their faith in one pocket and mm. their scholarship in another pocket yeah. and the two never meet. <laughs> And I think if uh, Christian scholars are enabled to see how their faith and their scholarship come together, then that gives a, a confidence in what they're doing and a confidence that their faith is something legitimate to be in uh, the, the academic world. Second element I would add to that is if you are <coughs> um, you know, alone as a Christian in your department or faculty, Um, I mean, a lot of it is just gentleness of how we speak. So we Mm. talked earlier about just uh, how people see our lives being lived, which is Mm. crucially important. Um, But also, some of us might come from Christian traditions where we're taught that we have to be very forward with Mm -hmm. how we articulate our faith. Otherwise, we're not actually being Christian enough in how we speak. And I think there's, um, I think we need to learn skills of uh, gracious, gentle, um, um, <clears throat> ways of just uh, allowing it to be seen that faith somehow has a presence in our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think how we speak about that faith we, is, can be a growing edge for many of us too mm-hmm. uh, in, our, in our departments mm-hmm. and yeah. environments. Yeah, maybe a, a slightly sympathetic note for that kind of person would, would be that graduate study, doctoral study, drives you very, very deep into a narrow specialization. And so the question of worldview from a faith and a Christian standpoint, uh, I think in talking with some colleagues in different arts and science specializations, they actually feel quite hesitant about their ability to articulate their Mm. Christian worldview because if they're of the current generation, there's very possible that they're biblically illiterate but they're so deeply literate in that particular Mm -hmm. specialization. And so how they actually make sense of the faith Mm -hmm. that they have inherited as a worldview and Mm -hmm. articulated in relationship to the tiny nuances and deep specializations Mm -hmm. of their department is a a tough question. Mm -hmm. And the confidence to do that sometimes requires another whole set of knowledge and uh, study. Yeah, I mean, if I could just add one thing, I, I think a very important ongoing conversation needs to be what faithfulness looks like. Yeah. And, you know, when you get hired at a university to do research or to teach, that's why you were hired, not because they were looking for a closet evangelist. I mean, the, <laughs> the, 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 of course, we want to be faithful in, in sharing the gospel as needed, but uh, so I think faithfulness in part it also looks like doing the job that you were hired to do. So mm-hmm. I think understanding exactly how to think about faithfulness in this context is an important issue that that uh, I continue to learn about. 
Uh, Chris, you brought up the idea of uh, the success in one of your universities because of building relationships. And <clears throat> I'm entering into uh, scholarship uh, studying classical history and biblical history, and there's a gigantic divide between what are termed as liberal and conservative scholars in textual criticism and interpreting the New Testament and its historical liability. <clears throat> and how would you suggest going about building relationships with particularly liberal scholars who literally see the see uh, like a, a the night version of your day with regards to interpreting that exact same evidence because it's it's it seems to me it's very difficult to even start the conversation because of a so-called consensus that <clears throat> you know for example regarding the dating of the gospels mm -hmm. there are plenty of reasons any good historian could could posit earlier dates for every single one of those books mm -hmm. but <clears throat> you can't even broach that subject in most secular institutions mm -hmm. if you're studying history or you're studying classical history how would you go about starting a conversation e either if it's um regarding starting getting someone to fund your research, or even just <coughs> talking about the issue with other colleagues. Mm -hmm. How would you go about building that relationship? Right. Uh, let me differentiate between just a conversation and successfully making it through your thesis. <laughs> uh, <coughs> and so in let me talk to the latter first, um, <coughs> because obviously you can uh, have a, a, a dissertation topic in mind, and you get there and you're, you know, it turns out the uh, and your supervisor, you know, has a very different, uh, different view. Um, so, <clears throat> uh, do we compromise our own theology in order to give a product that conforms to their, their expectations? I mean, in, in my case, that was my situation with my supervisor. Um, so, I simply found a, a topic that I could uh, write on with integrity that I was genuinely interested in and he was interested in too, and we could find enough common ground. Mm. Uh, and, and he was very supportive of, of what we ended up with. So I don't, I think personally, it is uh, a legitimate practice exercise. To you know, we go in, we often go into a, 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 a program with our dissertation in mind. Some of us do, some of us don't. But if, if we do, um, we can think of it as co uh, compromise to not end up doing what I really want to do to survive mm -hmm. with this supervisor. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's, it's okay to say, look, this is the reality of who I've got. Uh, I've got to meet this person some way in, mm -hmm. um, that doesn't, doesn't compromise my integrity but find a way to meet someplace t together. So I don't see that as some kind of illegitimate compromise. I see that as a, a valid sort of compromise. Mm -hmm. um, and as long as the supervisor has the character to permit points of disagreement along the way. Um, so that's on the dissertation side. On the conversation side, I think a lot of it depends on knowing the person you're talking to. And um, I mean, all of us have our buttons, <laughs> topics we'll have difficulty talking about, whatever it, whatever it is. And so I'd just, uh, at a superficial level, say, understand who you're talking to uh, as you raise topics, any more concerned about Okay, we have a question up here at the front, and then uh, maybe we'll take one, possibly two more questions. So, my question is, um, for me, as someone who wants to um, work up the scholarly ranks and become potentially a PhD or more, um, I understand that that requires a lot of time and a lot of work, and my question is, um, how do you manage life in terms of getting a job and potentially um, having a family 
as well while pursuing such intense scholarly um, ambitions? That's my question. Yeah. So oh, that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, before I, whenever I, I finished at my, uh, my MA and went off to, to doctoral work and, and a professor, we, were, we had coffee and he was chatting and he said, now look, uh, you're going off to another country, another state, uh, your wife doesn't know anybody there, um, don't forget about her. And so what I did is I treated my doctoral studies like a job. And I woke up, I went in, I worked at my graduate work from you know 8.30 to 5.30. Then I went home, my wife got home, and we hung out all night. And rinse and repeat the next day, do that for four years. Right? Uh, it wasn't that difficult uh, for me. Where, where things come in and I think get more difficult is for people who have a full-time job and are doing graduate work on top of the full-time job, and then because then they can't take that approach. Um, and so I'm not the guy to ask about that because I was fortunate enough to not be in that, that situation. Um, but uh, I mean, that, that was just how I did it. You know, I'm sure in, in certain other disciplines that's not feasible if you've got, you're doing medical rounds at all hours of the night, things like that. You know, but that, for me, that was, that was how it worked, and so it wasn't that difficult. I just treated my academic life as a paying job, uh, a very low paying job, um, but, uh, and, and just went from there, but, yeah. I'm uh, single, there's an, so I can't sorry. answer that. <laughs> it's even easier. <laughs> I was just thinking that, that the best thing to do is to walk down the halls of a place like this or other places and talk to PhD students and say, how are, how are you managing? Mm -hmm. And get their story, because it, the stories, I think, are, are changing. The challenges, financial, social, spiritual, etc., around following that journey are contextual and individual. Mm -hmm. But there are trends, and actually, my experience is, is too old now to actually advise you in a way. Mm -hmm. But this current students are a huge source of wisdom, I think, on mm -hmm. how to cope. Uh, you know, uh, life is hard, and <laughs> work is hard, and everyone works really hard. And then doesn't, you die. Doesn't matter whether you're a scholar or not. I mean, that's yeah. just the reality is that everyone works really hard. And I would just encourage you, if uh, if you have scholarly ambitions, to pursue them with joy and with um, with zeal, and just take it one day at a time, and and uh, and 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 you'll figure it out. Yeah. Um, I know that sounds really unhelpful, but honestly, just take it one day at a time. Yeah. Everything will be fine. And I'd also recommend that you pursue it with an open mind, knowing that the chances of you getting a job are very bad, because mm -hmm. uh, there's way more people looking for them than there are jobs available. And so uh, whenever I went off, I had a, there was another guy I met with uh, who was a, a, a faculty member at Baylor, and we chatted, and he said, look, if you want to do a PhD in philosophy, that's, that's great, but you have to just love philosophy so much that whenever you're done, you're happy to go get a job at the bank and not see those four or five years as a waste. Because chances are you're not going to get one. Like, I lucked out, I got one. A lot of people don't. So uh, if you're thinking of academic work, kind of think about it like that. You just want to do it just because you love it and you're happy to sort of suspend good earnings for four or five extra, extra years to get that PhD. And you go right back and, you know, work with the landscape guy or the bank or whatever. Like, you just have to have that approach because just having the PhD certainly doesn't guarantee you're going to have a job. Um, lots of people are learning that. All right. I think there's one last question here. Uh, hopefully... We'll end on a positive note. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Hi, I'm curious about how you came to, how God led you through your academic calling. So um, how did you come to discover um, your sense of vocational calling in the academia? Um, how did 
God lead and guide you throughout the yes. process? Were there particular moments or events that um, you really feel like, oh, wow, the Lord's really guiding me and he's, you know, mm. I feel confident in, in, in my calling. So, and that's for all of you. Yeah. I'm sure we all have funny stories, but I'll tell you my funny story. <laughs> How God works in unexpected ways. Uh, I did not do well in my BA. And, uh, for, and so I was totally intimidated coming to my MDiv at Wycliffe. And for some reason at the season of life when I arrived at Wycliffe, I did really well, to my utter surprise. And so by the end of my MDiv, uh, faculty were encouraging me to uh, go on for further studies. And, and Dick Longnecker really wanted me to stay and do biblical studies. And uh, so the direction of the community was encouraging me to go into biblical studies. But I hate all the languages. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, uh, what I, so what I actually planned was to do a, ma an, an, a THM in pastoral counseling at Trinity uh, University in Deerfield, Illinois. And I was two days away from leaving for that program when my funding that I thought was in place fell through. And I had a year until ordination. And I said, okay, Lord, like, what do I do? I thought I, you know, I was supposed to do this. So um, just went to John Webster. Said, John, can I do a THM for a year until my ordination? And he said, sure, um, in theology. So that was how I ended up falling into philosophical theology. And I'm so grateful that's what happened. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it's just, it's been great. But uh, so what, how, what kind of guidance do you call that? <laughs> I don't know. But that yeah. happens to be my, my own story. Others? I remember for me a very distinct moment. I was, uh, I had actually, I, th I went to do my MA in philosophy of religion and ethics, and I thought when I was done with that, I was going to go and work in a church or something. Uh, and while I was there, uh, that was whenever I started to develop interests in, in doctoral studies. And I remember I was at, it was very clearly, I was at a, a pastor's conference in Phoenix, Arizona, and I was sitting in the congregation, and there's this giant church, and they were sort of having this little big, uh, like, parade of, like, ministries, like, giving people, like, pastors ideas of kind of hands-on work they could do back in their own communities. And so all these people were coming through, working with homeless, working with disabled, working with the elderly, I, every kind of ministry you could imagine. And I remember sitting there feeling very guilty, thinking, like, I'm sitting around reading Plato. Like, look what these people are doing. Like, what the heck am I doing? Like, I really was feeling badly about myself, uh, thinking I was just wasting my time whenever I could be out you know, doing real ministry, real helping. And I, I remember uh, feeling very down and then just sort of uh, very clearly, I, I just felt God was speaking to me and said, you know, I, I'm not asking you to be them. I'm asking you to be you. You're doing what I want you to do. Stop comparing yourself to them. They're doing what I want them to do. And it was, sort of like, it was sort of a freedom to be, you know, God's giving me these interests and passions and, and maybe God is happy that I pursue them <laughs> and, and I don't have to fight back against them so I can go and help, you know, do one of these other kinds of sort of hands-on ministry. So for me, that was the moment where I sort of felt a, a freedom to continue to pursue these academic pursuits uh, with, without guilt uh, for not doing some other kind of ministry, ministry work. So, uh, yeah, it was 2005, uh, Phoenix, Arizona. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess what I would say briefly is that uh, don't do it alone. Mm. Um, at every step of the way, in terms of programs, degrees, theses, etc., walk with a cohort if you can. That's really healthy. Mm -hmm. And listen to voices. So do it with mentors and with mm -hmm. coaches that yeah. you have really solid relationships with. Sometimes that's not your supervisor or your supervisors, but it's people that are helping you discern. Mm -hmm. So 
I think it's partly what you're saying about be ready for surprise, be ready for change, mm -hmm. because your discerners, your community of help, the voices around you may help you to adjust, find a better path, mm. find a better thesis, and so on, and don't do it alone. Yeah. Listen to those folks. Um, yeah, that's, I think the mentorship is crucial. To be honest with you, I, I never imagined when I started medical school or even when I started residency that I would end up doing a PhD after all that and pursue an academic career. I imagined, you know, taking care of patients, but it was my mentors that kind of nudged me towards uh, academic pursuits and, and it proved to be very rewarding. But I, so I think uh, having the mentorship help you think through the decisions and and uh, help you find your aptitudes is uh, really valuable. All right, so maybe I'd like to bring this uh, panel to a close. And oh, Chris, did you have? Can I jump in with one la last comment? Oh, yeah, sure. <coughs> uh, sorry, Priyanti, but I will. Um, I think partly on the issue of what you do after your PhD. Um, I mean, it's it's very true. Most PhDs don't end up teaching and, and so forth in their field. Uh, I, w I went to, after my PhD, I went to India for seven years, uh, almost seven years, and, and taught there. And all my colleagues said, why on earth are you going there? Like, that is a career-ending move. Um, <clears throat> I would explore, if you get to end up with graduate degree of whatever kind, uh, explore where you might use that uh, in ways you may not have thought before. Mm -hmm. And I'm just incredibly grateful for those years I end up in, uh, in India. Um, so, that's a thought. Great. Thank you. So, I'd like to bring this panel to a close as well as uh, end our uh, symposium today. So, let's thank our speakers again.